Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27? Matthew 27. If you're new with us, we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And let's pick it up in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. It is now five o'clock in the morning, the time when Pilate's court opened. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, he was put through two trials, as we have said, the first one religious, the second one civil. The religious trial began around four o'clock in the morning. He was arrested in the garden around 3.30, brought first of all to the house of Annas, who was the official high priest interrogated there for a while, then brought to the house of Caiaphas, who was Annas's son-in-law and the Roman-appointed high priest. He had two high priests at this time. And it was at the house of Caiaphas where the Sanhedrin had gathered. That would be the Jewish uh, high council. And they had gathered there to uh, try Jesus' case. Of course, it was nothing more than the kangaroo court, as we have said. They had already determined that he was guilty and worthy of death. And so after they had pronounced their verdict, then they brought Jesus to Pilate. Now, this would begin the civil portion of the trial that he would endure before being crucified that morning. Now, this in the minds of the Jewish leadership, guys, was just a formality. All they wanted Pilate to do was rubber stamp the verdict they had already reached. You say, well, why did they need Pilate at all? Why didn't they just go ahead and they found him guilty? Why didn't they just go ahead and execute Jesus themselves? Well, they needed Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region of Judea and Samaria at that time, to also render a, a guilty verdict on Jesus because, according to John uh, 18.31, uh, Rome had taken away from the Jews the power to execute those convicted of a capital offense. Rome did that because Israel was now under their jurisdiction. They were no longer a sovereign nation. And so because of it, it meant only Rome now could execute lawfully those convicted of a capital crime. Yet most people don't understand the significance of this event, that Rome took away from Israel the right of capital punishment. Most people are really in the dark about how, uh, how significant that was. Let me explain. It goes back to a prophecy that Jacob gave on his deathbed way back in Genesis 49. You don't have to turn there, really. But Jacob, as you know, had 12 sons. And when Jacob was on his deathbed, he called for his sons to come around him and gather around his bed. And he went around the bed and prophesied over each one of them. When he came to his fourth son, Judah, he said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. The word Judah means praise. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Sounds a little cryptic, okay. Uh, the word Shiloh is a messianic term that literally means until he comes to whom it belongs. It refers ultimately to Jesus as the Messiah, to Jesus' rightful rule and authority over the whole earth during the millennial kingdom. Now, Jesus won the right to rule over the entire earth at the cross because in the Garden of Eden, Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, tempted Eve really, she ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he ate. And when they did that, 
They transferred ownership of the world from themselves. God gave it to them. Be fruitful and multiply and tend the earth. They gave it over into the hands of Satan, who then became the God of this world. And when Jesus came, he came to redeem not only mankind, but the whole creation. In other words, the world was also a part of his redemptive work. And so on the cross of Calvary, when he died on the cross, he redeemed the earth, the world back. It doesn't mean everyone in the world is saved. It just means that the earth will one day be under the leadership, the authority, and the rule of the rightful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he purchased that right to reign at his first coming. The scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the symbol of a sovereign nation and is emblematic of the right to impose capital punishment on those whose crimes warrant it, as any sovereign nation has the right to do. According to the historian Josephus, the right of capital punishment was taken away from the nation of Israel in 6 AD. Now when that happened, the rabbis all tore their clothes, put ashes on their heads, and went through the streets of Jerusalem weeping and wailing. You say, why were they so upset? In their mind, the word of God was broken. You see, the scepter had departed from Judah, and Shiloh, the Messiah, had not yet come. What they did not understand at that time was that 70 miles to the north in the town of Nazareth, there was living with his mother and stepfather a young boy named Jesus. You see, the word of God had not failed. The Messiah had come before the scepter had departed from Judah. But guys, at this point in Jewish history, the Jewish leaders couldn't execute Jesus. They had to bring him to Pilate, who alone could sentence and execute him under Roman law. And so they got there early to Pilate's judgment hall. Okay, Even before Pilate got there, they were waiting outside when he showed up. Because they wanted to make sure that their case against Jesus was the first case that he heard that day. Now, the fact that Rome executed uh, those convicted of a capital crime by crucifixion and not by stoning as the Jews did was also significant because it was prophetic. You see in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, a psalm that was penned by David but really spoken by Jesus as he hung from the cross looking down, read it again, spoken a thousand years before he was crucified, Jesus speaking through David said, they pierced my hands and feet. Guys, that was a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, 900 years before crucifixion was even invented. Also, in Zechariah uh, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, it prophesies that when the Jewish people see Jesus at his second coming, it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. In fact, someone has noted that 32, listen, 32 prophecies were fulfilled the day Jesus was crucified. All of these bearing witness that he was, in fact, the one that God had foretold was coming, the rightful Messiah. Now, verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Let me stop there. The King James translates that verse, then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, repented and brought Again, the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now, some people say, well, that's good. Judas repented, okay? It says it right here in the King James. Well, 
in the Greek, the word there for repented in the King James is not the normal word for repent or repentance. It's a different Greek word that literally means remorse or regret. That's why a lot of your newer translations, if not all of them, translate that he was remorseful or he regretted what he had done. It's what Paul the, the Apostle called worldly sorrow. Remember that, that Paul, uh, at one point, fires a letter off to the Corinthians. And there was a lot of bad things going on in the church. There was a lot of carnality, a lot of infighting, uh, a lot of junk that was happening. And Paul couldn't be there uh, right away to deal with it, so he had to fire off a letter to them. It was a pretty firm, pretty stern letter. And he, part of him didn't really want to do it because he didn't want to hurt them, but he knew he had to say something to correct them. Well, they repented, okay? And here's what he wrote them in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 10, talking about that. He said, look, I'm glad I sent the letter, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have, so you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. Some of these guys weren't even saved in the church of Corinth. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Now, hold on to that. Let me go back and read verses 3 and 4 in Matthew 27. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Again, see, they're, they're translating this in the New King James, and I've checked some of the other translations. They all pretty much say remorseful or regretful, that kind of thing. Not really true repentance, okay? But Judas, you know, when he saw that, what he had done had caused Jesus to be condemned, arrested, and then condemned to death. He was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. What do we care? Got a guilty conscience? Deal with it. Now, there are those who can't understand why if Judas was remorseful, felt bad about what he had done, and confessed his sin, why God did not forgive him. Because the other New Testament writers tell us that when Judas died, he went to hell. And I think, well, wait a minute. The guy was sorry for what he did. He, he confessed his sin. So why didn't God forgive him? Two reasons. First of all, regret is not the same as repentance. Regret is basically feeling sorry, but really not changing. Repentance involves sorrow, but then moves a person to make changes. The whole idea behind repentance is to turn around. Have a, The Greek word literally, two Greek words make up the word repentance, literally mean to have a change of mind. That leads to a change of, of actions, okay? Regret that does not lead to change is what Paul calls worldly sorrow and will not help, it will lead to death. Remorse or regret, feeling bad about what I have done, will often lead a person to true repentance. But if it stops short of real repentance, real change, it gives the illusion something spiritual has taken place when in fact it hasn't. That can deceive people and has many times. Listen, I do believe Judas regretted what he had done. You see, you know, it's kind of confusing to me. Why did he do this? Well, we don't know what was in the mind of Judas when he betrayed the Lord to the, you know, to the chief priests and Pharisees and so on. I kind of believe that Judas was trying to force Jesus 
to lead them in a revolt against Rome and to bring the kingdom in. Again, this is what every Jew was waiting for the Messiah to do when he came. They believed when Messiah finally showed up, he was going to lead them in a revolt against whatever Gentile power there was at that time. And he would establish a kingdom on the earth where the Jews would, would reign with him from Jerusalem. So when Jesus showed up, claiming to be the Messiah, working the miracles of the Messiah, and all of that, a lot of people got very excited. In fact, a lot of folks started following him, and eventually he picked 12 to be his apostles. Judas was one of those. But then as time goes on, he's not really acting or talking like a revolutionary. He's talking about loving enemies. He's talking about not retaliating against those who hurt you. All of this is causing a lot of people to wonder, is this guy really the Messiah? Well, Judas figures, I'm convinced, that he's going to force the issue. That he really believed, I think, Jesus was the Messiah. So I'm going to give him a little head, I'm going to give him a little jump start here. I'm going to, you know, give him a little push towards the revolution. How am I going to do that? I'm going to betray him to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees so that when they arrest him in the garden, he'll say, guys, this is it. Draw your swords. We're going to start the revolution. Didn't happen. Jesus just submitted to it. They let him away. They beat him up pretty badly. They pronounced him guilty. And Judas felt badly about the turn of events that had happened. And so he brings the money back. He confesses what he had done. But here's the thing. He didn't let his remorse or his sorrow lead him to genuine repentance. If he had, I'm convinced, he would have come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness. Okay, He would have come to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, I, I really blew it here. I, I really was trying to do something positive. But I realize now how misguided it was. Lord, will you please forgive me? And I am convinced absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus would have said, you're forgiven, Judas. But instead, he never allowed his sorrow to lead him to genuine repentance. We absolutely must understand that simply confessing that we have sinned, even when it's accompanied by a good amount of self-loathing, is not biblical repentance and will not bring a person forgiveness of sin. Let me read to you what one author, and I like this author, uh, Jim Boyce. He's a good guy. He's with the Lord right now, but he's a good man. He's written some great commentaries. He had something to say about this that I thought was very uh, important for us to hear. He said, Many people have confessed themselves sinners without their confession making the slightest difference in their lives. True repentance involves a full 180-degree turn, half of it away from sin, the other half to Jesus. This is the only sure path to salvation. I heard a particularly striking example of this. Dr. Walter Kaiser, Jr., the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, was speaking one day, and he told of a man that he had counseled years before. The man had been a distinguished surgeon, but he had made a wreck of his life. He had begun to drink heavily and had lost his job, his income, his home, his wife, and his whole family. He had turned to Kaiser for help, and Kaiser had told him to pray to God, confessing his sin. The man said, I don't know how to pray. He said, just talk to God like you're talking to me, Kaiser answered. The man began, hello, God, it's me. I guess you know I've made a mess of my life. I made a mess of everything. He went on to tell of all the bad things he had done and all the terrible mistakes he had made. He prayed like that for 15 minutes. Kaiser was delighted. He had never heard a confession as full and forthright as that from anyone. But suddenly the man stopped. 
Go on, said Kaiser. That's good, but what you need to do now is ask God for forgiveness and trust Jesus as your Savior. The man startled him by suddenly drawing himself upright, squaring his shoulders, and literally shouting out, No, that is one thing I will never do. I will never ask for forgiveness for anything. The boy said, according to Kaiser, the man had made a 90-degree turn, but he would not turn all the way to Jesus. He recognized his sin, but he would not turn from it enough to seek the Savior, unquote. Now, I read that because I know, and I've come across many people in my ministry who are not saved, but come because their, their life is such a mess. And, and, and when I begin to probe them about, well, why is your life a mess? What are you into? What have you done? They will openly, most often, confess that they have done a lot of terrible things. And they will rattle off the sins that they have committed. They will acknowledge that what they did was horrible. They treated their wife terribly, their children, everybody that loved them, they pushed away, and so on with the drugs or the alcohol, whatever. They will openly confess their sin. And when I say, okay, that's great. Now, what you need to do is ask the Lord, I'll pray with you, ask the Lord for forgiveness and turn your life over to Jesus. Uh, well, you know, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. And you see, just confessing your sin as Judas did, just acknowledging you have done wrong and feeling badly about it is not going to save you unless you come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and receive him as your Lord and Savior. So verse 4, Judas said, I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now, this has presented a problem in that here in Matthew, it says that Judas hung himself. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, we read that Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. Okay, so which is it? Did he hang himself or did he throw himself over a cliff? What is it? Well, first of all, it says here in Acts 1.18, when it says Judas had bought a field with the money uh, he received for his treachery, it doesn't mean he bought the field himself because he was dead. Okay? Uh, it means that the money he received for betraying Christ, he eventually threw down, and that money was used to buy a field. All right? But again, the idea, what, you know, what happened here? Uh, you know, how did he commit suicide? Which one is it? I think it was kind of both. Kind of both. So what do you mean? Well, I believe that he hung himself, okay? I believe he found a tree on a hill somewhere, and he hung himself from one of the branches. After he was dead for a while, and maybe in that hot sun, his body began to get, you know, whatever, bloated and so on, eventually the branch broke, and his body tumbled down the hill. If you've ever been to Israel, there's rocks everywhere. Okay, I mean, I can imagine it was just a very rocky hill that his body tumbled down. When it, and as it tumbled down, it split open. And it came to rest in a field that was probably, it looks like from the account, it was probably a potter's field. What, what is that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. A potter's field was simply a field next to a potter's house. And any pottery that didn't survive the firing process, cracked or broken, the, the potter would just toss it out into, these, into the field next to his house. Well, eventually these fields got so loaded with little bits and pieces of broken pottery, they became unusable for farming. In fact, they became pretty much worthless for anything except to bury 
the poor and every municipality had the responsibility to bury the poor who couldn't afford to be buried themselves. And so what they did was they looked for these potter's fields because they were cheap, okay? You know, always trying to save money. They were cheap, except our municipalities, but uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, and so they, they, they would buy these potter's fields to bury the poor, and that's why a potter's field, the, the term, came to be used for a graveyard, okay? But in verse 6 we read, But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful to put them back in the temple treasury. Such upright, righteous guys, right? Because they are, they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The chief priest said, what do we do now? And we can't take the money and put it back into the temple treasury. It's blood money. We use it to buy information that led to the death of this man, Jesus. What do we do with it? I talked about it for a while, and they came up with the idea of using it to buy a potter's field. And again, very probably the very field where Judas' body rolled down the hill and finally came to rest in this field was probably a potter's field. They, they just simply bought that and uh, used it to bury him and anybody else who was too poor to be, be buried. But this idea of the 30 pieces of silver being thrown down in the temple of the Lord and used to buy a potter's field, that was a prophecy that had been given in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verses 9 and 10, listen, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, that is a quote that comes out of Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. So you say, well, how can Matthew then attribute these words to Jeremiah, if they obviously come out of Zechariah. Yeah, well, he was just wrong. Well, do you really want to go there? I mean, you know, if Matthew was wrong about that, he was a Levite. A lot of them were scribes, scholars of the, of the Old Testament scriptures, okay? Uh, that means that he was wrong, the Bible's not infallible, and we're in some trouble here as evangelicals. And I'm just explaining this to you because you're going to come across this, okay? There seems to be an apparent contradiction here in Matthew. He says, Jeremiah said this, and it's obviously a quote from Zechariah. What have we got going here? Was there a contradiction? No. The explanation is found in how the Jews divided up their scriptures, which as a whole, they called the Tanakh, okay? Our Old Testament is their holy scriptures, which they call the Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym an acronym for the first Hebrew letter of each of the three divisions of their scriptures. You've got a T, which stands for Torah. These are the first five books of Moses called the books of instruction. Then you have the N, which it stands for Nevi'im, which is a word in Hebrew that means prophets. And then the third section is Ketrevim, which means writings. Hence, T-N-K, Tanakh, just an acronym. All right. In the rabbinical order now, as you come to the prophetic section of their scriptures. The first book was the book of Jeremiah. And often if they wanted to quote or attribute something from one of the prophets, they would just say, as Jeremiah says. It doesn't mean Jeremiah directly said it. It just means it's written in the section where Jeremiah, his book appears first, and the whole section is kind of called Jeremiah. 
just like they will often say something like it was written in the in the Psalms. The Psalms was the first book of the third section, the writings. So sometimes it would just they would just say in the Psalms, but they would mean that final division of their holy scriptures. So here, when Matthew attributes the prophecy in Zechariah to Jeremiah, he's not saying that Jeremiah spoke it. He's saying it's found in Jeremiah or the section known as the prophets is really all that's being said here. All right. Now, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now, guys, listen, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees knew that Pilate would never condemn a man to death on the religious grounds of blasphemy, which is what the Sanhedrin had convicted Jesus of. Blasphemy. They, they knew that was never going to fly in a Roman court of law. Pilate was never going to convict Jesus of a crime worthy of death based on blasphemy. They knew they had to come up with something that would be grounds for death in a Roman court of law. And because of it, they came up with three separate charges. Okay, they want to make sure that they had this thing completely covered. They came up with not one, not two, but three separate charges that really would cause Pilate to have no choice but to condemn Jesus to death. The three charges were these, that Jesus, first of all, was perverting the nation. Perverting the nation. He was a revolutionary who posed a threat to the empire. Secondly, and, and none of these were true, by the way, but these were the charges. Secondly, he was telling people not to pay taxes to the Roman government. Well, that would undermine the prosperity of the empire. And number three, he was claiming to be a king, therefore threatening the power and position of the emperor himself. Now, if you've ever studied Rome and the Roman system and the Roman government, Rome was pretty tolerant when it came to matters of religion. But any talk of insurrection or of undermining the emperor's authority, they took very seriously. And Pilate focused on that third charge that Jesus claimed to be a king because that, in his mind, was the most serious of the three. Therefore, he asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gave him a clear reply. It is as you say. Now, in John's gospel, he records that after Jesus answered Pilate's question, he asked Pilate a question of his own. Like when you turn there, John 18. Because John gives us a fuller look at the events of this final day of Jesus' life before the cross. And in John chapter 18, starting in verse 34, we read, you know, Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus says, well, it is as you say. Then in John 18, verse 34, he said to Pilate, are you speaking this for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? See, now Jesus turns around and he, <laughs> I love the Lord, yeah. Pilate's interrogating Jesus. He's questioning Jesus. Jesus answers his question, turns it around and says, now he becomes the interrogator. Are you asking this because you want to know? Or did somebody tell you I was a king? Pilate gets irritated. He said, am I a Jew? He, he's just a guy who wants to get through his day. Okay, He doesn't want to play games. Pilate was a little bit miffed. He said, what am I, a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? 
get to it. What, are you, what have you done here? Jesus answered, my kingdom, you wonder if I'm a king, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would, should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. You see, when Jesus explained to Pilate that he was a king, but that his kingdom was not of this world, that he had no armies, his followers would not fight, and that his kingdom was really a kingdom of truth, a reign of truth, well... I don't know what Pilate thought if this guy was just a nut, but, you know, his conversation with Jesus convinced Pilate that Jesus was not a dangerous revolutionary. A little nutty, but not a dangerous revolutionary. Therefore, he comes to a verdict. He says, I find no fault in him. But the Jewish rulers were not to be denied. They had a lot invested in this whole deal. And so they insisted that Pilate condemn Jesus. And as they repeated their charges, and in the course of shouting their accusations against Jesus, they let it be known that he was from Galilee. That's where Jesus really um, was raised. He was actually born, of course, in Bethlehem in Judea. But he was raised in Nazareth, you know, ministered for the most part in Galilee. And so when Pilate, who was a true politician, when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he said, hey, that's, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Okay, hey, I'm off the hook. Because he was uncomfortable, as we're going to see next time more clearly, he was really uncomfortable about sitting in judgment of Jesus. He had no idea what he was in for. He thought, okay, my first case of the day. But as this case progressed, Pilate became more and more unglued. You see, as the charges started to come forth, and it started to come out that Jesus, yeah, he claimed to be a king, but not just a king. At one point, he claimed to be the son of God. As the charges, you know, as, as, as Pilate became more aware of what actually, who this person really claimed to be. And then on top of it, his wife comes to him at one point, Pilate's wife. While he's sitting in judgment, takes a little break, she says, comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this just man. I have suffered a lot of things about him in a dream today. What? You're getting dreams about this guy? Telling you to have me leave him alone? Who is this guy? He goes out and says, who are you? Okay. Uh, no, he goes back out and says, I find no fault in this guy. Well, we find fault with him, the Jewish leader said, because he claims to be the son of God. What? Goes back in, who are you? Where are you from? See, Pilate's getting more and more unglued. When he hears Jesus is from, really from the region of Galilee, he figures, oh, I'm off the hook. He's from Galilee, that's Herod's jurisdiction, okay? So in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, we read in verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. He asked if Jesus were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. 
for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Oh, goody. Finally, I get to meet this Jesus. Maybe he'll do some tricks for me. Maybe he'll do some miracles to entertain me. Verse 9 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered Herod nothing. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus met Herod, he had absolutely nothing to say to him, not a word. So well, why was that? Wasn't this a great opportunity for Jesus to give Herod the truth? Why did he just shut him down? Why did he refuse to speak to Herod? You know, that doesn't seem fair. Here was a great opportunity to try to reach this man with the gospel. Well, that would be true if you didn't know the whole story. The whole story was that Herod, who, by the way, had John beheaded, John the Baptist, actually liked John. It was his wife and his stepdaughter that pushed him into, you know, through a hasty promise that Herod made, pushed him into killing John the Baptist. But Herod liked John. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, it could be that Herod was fascinated with John's lifestyle. Here was a guy who was happy, fulfilled, uh, had a purpose in life, living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey. Herod lived in a palace, had eat anything he wanted, but he was empty and miserable and, and had no real purpose in life, even though his life was full of pleasure. I think he was fascinated with John's ascetic lifestyle. So he would call John in all the time, and they would have conversations. Well, if you know John, I'm convinced he was laying heavy witnesses on Herod all the time about accepting Christ, you know? That's John's whole ministry, repent. All right? But it wasn't something Herod wanted. He didn't want to hear about repentance, change your life, right? And so every time they talked, Herod just shut John down about receiving Christ, repenting of his lifestyle, and so on. Herod, listen, had ample opportunities to receive Christ. And so now when Herod, Herod finally got to meet Jesus face to face, the Lord had nothing to say to him. Listen, the opportunities had ended, his time to receive Jesus had run out, and the Lord's silence was in effect the silence of judgment upon Herod's life. You know, as we have said before, a person will only get so much time to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. The light of God's truth is only going to be offered to them for a limited time. God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Herod's time had come to an end. And Jesus had nothing left to say to him because Herod had rejected the truth. Now we pick it back up in verse 12 of Matthew 27. So Herod, Herod and his guys abused Jesus and kicked him back to Pilate. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing because their day of opportunity was done too. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Here he's now silent with Pilate. Here he saw, why? When he first started to talk to Pilate, the Lord was witnessing to him about who he was. He said, I'm a king, you're right. I have come into this world to bear witness of the truth. All who belong to my kingdom receive the truth. Remember what Pilate said? What is truth? 
Now, how did he say that? Did he say, you know truth? What is truth? Tell me. Or did he say sarcastically, yeah, what is truth? I think he said sarcastically. Why? If he would have said it enthusiastically, he would have stayed there to hear Jesus' response. And if he had said it like that, I believe Jesus would have continued, Jesus would have continued to witness to him. And who knows, maybe Pilate would have got saved. But see, Pilate was a product of the Greco-Roman world. And the Greek philosophers for centuries were trying to explore the whole idea of truth. What is true? Everybody had their own little version of what truth was. So many people had given up all hope of ever, ever knowing what truth was. So here's Jesus. I have come to bear witness of the truth. Ah, what is truth? And he walks away. And at that point, I think that the opportunity for Pilate to be saved, now the door was closed. And Jesus was now silent with him. Again, guys, the opportunity, the, the day of grace to receive Jesus is not indefinite. A person only gets so long to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. And if they reject him and reject him and reject him, at one point the door of opportunity closes and God is silent. It is the silence of judgment upon their lives. Look, and we're done. On that day, Pilate and Herod thought they were sitting in judgment of Jesus. Little did they realize that what they decided to do with Jesus was going to judge and condemn them someday when they stood before him. And guys, that's always the way it is. When we bring the gospel to people, and by the way, as somebody has said, we are not called to bring men to Christ, only to bring Christ to men. We can't save anybody. All we're commissioned to do is go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when we talk to people about Jesus, they think, well, I'm going to decide what to do here. They don't realize that what they decide to do with Jesus then is really going to decide what Jesus does with them someday when they stand before him. When Jesus stood before Pilate and Herod that day, Pilate and Herod had no idea that someday they would be standing before this very man at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, where now the judge and king of the whole universe, they would stand before, gives you chills, doesn't it? Where they would stand before Jesus and the decision they made concerning him all those centuries earlier would be the very decision that he would use to judge them for eternity. It is a terrifying thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. And the day to receive Christ is not indefinite. It is a limited amount of time. That's what the Bible says. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Open your heart to Jesus Christ. Receive him. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. Today is the day of salvation. And you don't want to be like Pilate or Herod or so many others who kept rejecting, kept rejecting until finally God says, you don't want the truth. You don't deserve the truth. You don't want the light. I'm going to remove the light. And now darkness will be yours forever and ever. Everybody in this room has the opportunity once again to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a decision you have to make. But in making it, you're not judging him, you're judging yourself. May God give you the grace to make the right decision. And the right decision is to bow the knee and say to him, Lord Jesus, 
I've done some pretty rotten things in my life. I admit that. I'm not proud of it, Lord. In fact, I confess these sins to you. And now, Lord, what I want to do is turn away from them and turn to you completely. I want to receive you into my heart and life as my Lord, my Savior, my King. I want you to take control. I want to live for you from this day on. That's what you need to do. What you wind up doing is completely up to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunities that you've given us. And Lord, most of the people in this room, if not all, have made a commitment to you. And so we thank you, Lord, that you gave us the truth, that you gave us the grace to understand the truth and believe the truth and at one point commit our lives to the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we have many people who don't know you that we love, many family members, good friends, co-workers. And Lord, we pray for their souls. The devil is telling them that you're not who you claim to be. Or the biggest lie he impresses on people is that they have plenty of time to get right with you at one point down the road when tomorrow is not promised to anybody. So Lord, open their eyes. Deliver them from the deception. And bring them to you, Lord. Bring them to you. That they would not have to hear someday, I never knew you depart from me. But could hear you say to them one day, well done, good and faithful servants. You are faithful in a few things. Now, enter into the joy of your Lord. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.